worshiping God as a trinity. I want to open up in prayer from the Valley of Vision. I've done this particular prayer before. It's called a minister's preaching. Let's pray. My Master God, I am desired to preach today, but go weak and needy to my task. Yet I long that people might be edified with divine truth, that an honest testimony might be born for thee. Give me assistance in preaching and prayer, with heart uplifted for grace and unction. Present to my view things pertinent to my subject, with fullness of matter and clarity of thought, proper expressions, fluency, fervency, a feeling sense of the things I preach, and grace to apply them to men's consciences. Keep me conscious all the while of my defects, and let me not gloat in pride over my performance. Help me to offer a testimony for thyself, and to leave sinners inexcusable in neglecting thy mercy. Give me freedom to open the sorrows of thy people, and to set before them comforting considerations. Attend with power the truth preached, and awaken the attention of my slothful audience. May thy people be refreshed, melted, convicted, comforted, and help me to use the strongest arguments drawn from Christ's incarnation and sufferings that men might be made holy. I myself need thy support, comfort, strength, holiness, that I might be a pure channel of thy grace and be able to do something for thee. Give me then refreshment among thy people and help me not to treat excellent matter in a defective way or bear a broken testimony to so worthy a redeemer or be harsh in treating of Christ's death, its design and end from lack of warmth and fervency and keep me in tune with thee as I do this work. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to be using a lot of scripture, and I'll let you know when I want you to turn to specific scripture for us to briefly look at. In John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, John 4, 23 and 24, Jesus informs the woman at the well that true worshipers will and must worship God in spirit and in truth. Jesus said, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The context points to the truth that location or place of worship is not the primary issue. The bottom line issue is the issue of our hearts. F.F. Bruce writes this, quote, God himself is pure spirit, and the worship in which he takes delight is accordingly spiritual worship, the sacrifice of a humble, contrite, grateful, and adoring spirit. Unquote. Bruce calls this sincere heart devotion. This true worship is only possible for genuine Christians. Let's start off with that. Let's consider why this is true. Only Christians can and will worship God as a trinity. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and then verse 5, that before a person is saved, he or she is spiritually dead because of their sins. The unbeliever is spiritually dead. His spirit or soul, the inner person, is spiritually dead. The spiritually dead person cannot worship the living God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, as well as verse 8, tell us that God in His love and mercy has made us alive. And us refers to Christians. God has saved us who believe by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. In parts of Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, God says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. 
The context here is referring to Israel's restoration during the millennial kingdom. However, this is also a beautiful description, so rich and profound theologically, of what God does when he causes the spiritually dead to come forth, to be born again. To be born again to what? To be empowered to repent and believe in the gospel by God's grace. This person has experienced a broken and a contrite heart, a godly sorrow for sinning against God. Has that happened to you? He understands he deserves hell because the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins, it shall die. He has broken all ten commandments repeatedly. He understands that his righteousness, his very best, is as filthy rags in God's holy sight. He understands that God's glorious standard for heaven is perfection. He desperately realizes that he needs his sins forgiven. He needs the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to his spiritual account. By God's grace alone, he has repented from the wicked idea that he can save himself by being a good person. He has repented of worshiping himself as the Lord of his own life. Did you catch that? He has repented of worshiping himself as the Lord of his own life. By God's grace, this person is empowered to repent. Repent of unbelief, but also to repent of turning from sin and to believe in Jesus Christ alone as Savior and Lord. He believes that Jesus paid his sin debt in full on Calvary's cross, was buried, and rose again triumphantly on the third day. He believes he trusts in Jesus as the only Savior, as his or her only Savior. From what? From sin's penalty of hell's punishment. He believes he wholeheartedly commits to obey, to submit, to follow, to worship Jesus as his personal Lord, the master, the king of his life. Are you a Christian? A Christian loves his Bible. God's word is precious to him because Jesus, the living word, is precious to him. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31. If you abide in my word... You are my disciples, indeed. Genuine Christians have a burning desire to worship God in spirit and truth as revealed in the Bible. God has revealed himself as a trinity in the Bible. I love the trinity. We worship our triune God for who he is, for what he has done, and for what he promises he will do. We worship God by, by, by feasting on his precious word, manna from heaven, food for our souls, the Bible. Do you love your Bible? I love my Bible. We worship God by joyfully obeying him, honoring him, adoring him, and fearing him. We praise and thank God continuously with respect to all his glorious attributes. God's attributes are his characteristics that describe what he is like. True worship has a balanced view of God's attributes. True worship has a balanced view and emphasis on God's love, mercy, and grace, and His holiness, justice, and sovereignty. A.W. Tozier wrote this, The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. Unquote. Tozier wrote this in his classic book called The Knowledge of the Holy. In chapter 1, entitled, Why We Must Think Rightly About God, he wrote this, Wrong ideas about God are not only the fountain from which the polluted waters of idolatry flow, they are themselves idolatrous. The idolater simply imagines things about God and acts as if they were true, so necessary to the church as a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. Before the Christian church goes into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of her simple, basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? And goes 
on from there, unquote. A.W. Tozer, he penned these words in 1961. And since then, much of so-called evangelicalism has continued to slide down the downgrade of wrong ideas about God. Tozer's penetrating points have application for us here this morning. The title of James White's excellent book implies this. The title is, The Forgotten Trinity, Recovering the Heart of Christian Belief. James White writes this, quote, Most Christian people, while remembering the term Trinity, have forgotten the central place the doctrine is to hold in the Christian life. It is rarely the topic of sermons in Bible studies, rarely the object of adoration and worship, at least worship in truth, which is what the Lord Jesus said the Father desires in John chapter 4, verse 23. Instead, the doctrine is misunderstood as well as ignored. It is so misunderstood that a majority of Christians, when asked, give incorrect and at times downright heretical definitions of the Trinity. For others, it is ignored in such a way that even among those who correctly understand the doctrine, it does not hold the place it should in the proclamation of the gospel message, nor in the life of the individual believer in prayer, worship, and service. Unquote. Tozier and White give us a momentous, a momentous motivation for the urgency of this tremendous topic on the Trinity this morning. Let's begin. The most basic preliminary definition of the Trinity is this. One God in three persons. I'd write that down. I'm going to do a lot of repetition, and I'll slow down at some points, and I'll ask you to write down key points. One God in three persons. The word Trinity comes from the Latin word Trinitas, which means threeness. This threeness means three in oneness. This is accurately simplified by the term triunity. Thus, we sometimes refer to God as the triune God. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. However, like other theological terms, the term Trinity accurately summarizes the biblical data in teaching that God is three persons who are one God. God is three persons who are one God. These three distinct persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remembering that God is one, we can also say that the three distinct persons are three divine distinct persons called God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity does not mean that there are three gods. Nor does the Trinity mean that there are three beings that together equal the one God. The doctrine or teaching of the Trinity exists because the Bible is emphatic in proclaiming that there is only one God. Yet, the Bible also declares clearly that the Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. This is not a contradiction, but this is a seeming paradox for our finite, limited, let's call it like it is, small minds. The doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery that has been partially revealed to Christians. Right up front, we have applications for our worship. The Bible says this in part of Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. In Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us, that or so that we may do all the words of this law. God has graciously condescended, stooped down, reverently speaking, to reveal the basics of the Trinity to us who believe. We are responsible to apply the implications of what we understand to, to what? To how we joyfully live and pray for His glory. At the same time, 
the deeper theological aspects of Trinitarian truth should motivate us to what? Humble adoration of the incomprehensibility of God's transcendent, majestic nature. J.I. Packer writes this in his Concise Theology. Quote, the historic formulation of the Trinity seeks to circumscribe and safeguard this mystery, not explain it, that is beyond us, unquote. Millard Erickson writes this in his Christian Theology. Quote, we do not hold the doctrine of the Trinity because it is self-evident or logically cogent. We hold, we hold it because God has revealed that is what he is like. As someone has said of this doctrine, try to explain it and you'll lose your mind. But try to deny it and you will lose your soul. Unquote. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, defines the Trinity this way. Get your pens out. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. I'll repeat that. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Now, this is biblical, a biblical orthodox definition. This definition begins with three persons or emphasizes the three persons in line with the tri part of the term Trinity. However, uh, taking a 2,000-year view on this doctrine, it may be more appropriate to begin with the focus on, or actually beyond 2,000, it may be more appropriate to begin with the focus on there is one God. Accordingly, here's another definition. Here's James White's definition in the aforementioned book, which I highly recommend. Quote, within the one being that is God, I'll say that part again, within the one being that is God, there exist eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Within the one being that is God, there exist eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The order of this definition is more in line with the historic orthodox formulation of the Trinity. God is one being eternally existing in three persons. Let's first consider the foundation upon which the doctrine, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is established. Monotheism. I'll spell it M-O-N-O-T-H-E-I-S-M. -E Monotheism. That's the foundation for the Trinity. The Bible declares over and over the truth that there is only one God. Please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses, verse 4. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. This one true God is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our God. The historical context is this. The Israelites are about to enter the promised land, and the Jews will be tempted with the surrounding false religions and false gods. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9, is called the Shema, the Hebrew word for hear. And this is a prayer and confession recited each morning and evening. And the Shema is the Jews' great declaration of faith in Yahweh as one God. Please notice the next verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might or strength. The doctrine of verse 4 leads to the application of devotion in worship in verse 5. The towering truth that there is only one God means we owe our, our adoring allegiance completely to Him. One God means one allegiance. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke record Jesus quoting 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus calls this the first, the foremost, the great commandment. Jesus answered a scribe's question, which was this. What commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. We see the Son of God doing what here? We see the Son of God confirming that God is one. A treasure of transforming truths are built on the firm foundation of monotheism. There is only one God. The command to loving commitment in Deuteronomy 6.5 is connected with fearing and obeying God in Deuteronomy 6.2. And part of Deuteronomy 6.2 informs us that the great commandment is given, quote, that, the, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and commandments. This godly fear is a reverential awe and respect for God's greatness. God's greatness is richly displayed in all his brilliant, glorious, majestic attributes. This godly fear motivates worship, joyful, loving, heart obedience to God and the word of God. The Old Testament repeatedly emphasizes that there is only one true God. This is repeatedly seen, especially in Isaiah chapters 44 through 46. Monotheism is also seen in the New Testament. We have already witnessed Jesus himself, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, affirming that God is one. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. First Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4. I'll read verses 4 and 6. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. And look at verse 6. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. The emphasis in verse 4 and in verse 6 is monotheism. There is no God but one, and there is but one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Behold, behold, right here in the context of these verses stressing monotheism, we are enthralled to worship, to gaze upon something, to gaze upon the equality of essence, the equality of nature between the Father and Jesus. This means that the members of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, are co-equal. Co-equal. Furthermore, the title Lord as applied to Jesus, what does that mean? That means that he is God. Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign. He is sovereign over all creation. This scripture says this about Jesus. By whom are all things. This affirms the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, as the one through whom the Father created the world. Jesus is God and Jesus is the creator. Another Bible verse that expresses monotheism in the context of the Father and the Son in salvation is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Only Jesus, the God-man, can bridge the great gulf between God the Father and mankind. Let's finish, not with the sermon, we're just getting started. Let's finish with the firm foundation of the Trinity, monotheism, by very uh, briefly considering Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Happy to see those, that scripture is part of one of the songs that we sang. That fired me up. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 
verse 4 through 6. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Here we see all three persons of the Blessed Holy Trinity in the context of monotheism. One in three, three in one. Ephesians 4, 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We see the Holy Spirit in verse 4. The Lord referring to Jesus, we see that in verse 5, and God the Father in verse 6. The context is what? Unity in diversity for the church. Unity in diversity for the church. Unity in diversity. This shines, shines forth in the Trinity. Unity of essence refers to one God. We see here one Holy Spirit, one Lord Jesus, and one God and Father. Unity of essence refers to one God. Diversity is displayed in what? In three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This scripture text transitions us to focus more on the plurality, the plurality, P-L-U-R-A-L-I-T-Y, the plurality within the unity of the Trinity. Plurality means more than one. The Trinity is in, implicitly or indirectly revealed in the Old Testament and more explicitly or directly revealed in the New Testament. Listen to this. Trinitarian teaching is progressively revealed in the Bible. It's progressively revealed. It, it builds. The picture we see of the Trinity comes more into focus as we change lenses from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Let's briefly trace a Trinitarian thread beginning with Genesis. The Bible says this in part of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Part of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Notice the plural pronouns us and our. Here we start to see the plurality of persons within the one God. Another verse, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, we witness Isaiah's incredible calling as a prophet. Isaiah 6, 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Us. Notice that. Again, we get a glimpse, a partial view of the plurality of persons within the one Lord. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, we clearly see the Father-Son relationship in the Trinity. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus is eternally begotten which means he has special, unique privileges. He was not created. Jesus was not created. Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. I can't wait to get to this because I know it's coming up. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, and this is going to be quite astonishing for some of you here today. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Part of Hebrews chapter 1, look at this very closely. Part of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8, 8 and 9 says this. But of, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And now look at, go to verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated 
lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. This is absolutely fantastic. God the Father is directly calling the Son God. That'll make you want to worship, won't it? God the Father is directly calling the Son God. In verse 8, he says, look at that, in verse 8, he says, refers to the Father. The Son is referring to Jesus. The Father is saying to the Son, your throne, O God. There's even more here. Part of verse 9 says, therefore God, your God. Therefore God, your God has anointed you. God here, both times, refers to God the Father. So what we have is this. God the Father refers to himself as your God in relation to Jesus. The Father called Jesus God. That last point is really profound. It's a profound point because it helps us to understand that Jesus and the Father are co-equal. That's important for the Trinity, co-equal. And this helps us to correctly interpret the New Testament. For example, Jesus' equality with the Father is not negated. It's not denied by the Father being referred to as Jesus is God. There's no problem with Jesus calling the Father God because we just saw that the Father called Jesus God. In other words, Jesus is not denying that he's God. Jesus is not denying his deity. He is den Jesus is not denying that he is God the Son when he refers to the Father as my God in the New Testament. It's going to help you out when you're talking to certain groups of people. Please turn in your Bibles uh, to Psalm 110, verse 1. Please turn in your Bible to Psalm 110, verse 1. Hear those pages moving? That's a beautiful sound. Love it. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord is in all capital letters, and that shows us this is referring to Yahweh. And Yahweh is speaking to the Lord Jesus here. Yahweh speaking to Jesus. In other words, God the Father said to God the Son. Psalm 110 is quoted many places in the New Testament. Let's finish with the Old Testament unless I decide to go back. Let's finish with the Old Testament with Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1. Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. I'll repeat that again. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Upon me refers to who? To Jesus. Jesus quoted this passage in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. In Luke 4.18, he quoted that. To confirm what? To confirm that this scripture was fulfilled in him as the prophesied Messiah as he was reading this scripture. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and the Lord God is the Father. The Father sent the Holy Spirit to anoint Jesus with the power to preach the gospel and to fulfill his ministry. This Trinitarian verse in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, is a good transition to the New Testament, especially with respect to Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, 
And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove, enlightening on him. This is one of the best Trinitarian verses in the Bible. The three distinct persons of the Trinity are simultaneously displayed. That's very important. Simultaneously displayed at the same time. The Father speaks from heaven to his Son who is being baptized. The Holy Spirit, represented by the dove, rest, rested upon Jesus. This verse is a good opportunity to refute some false ideas. <clears throat> the baptism of Jesus, the immersion of Jesus into water, single-handedly sinks the heresy of modalism. The baptism of Jesus should drown modalism. Amen. Modalism. M-O-D-A-L-I-S-M. Let's say you spelled it. M-O-D-A-L-I-S-M. Yet the false teachers who deny the Trinity, they keep bringing the heresy, this heresy back up to the surface. Modalism, that's a problem. You know why? Modalism denies that there are three distinct persons in one God. They falsely argue that God is not three persons. Instead, the modalists falsely argue that God is one person who appears in different forms or modes at different times. A modern-day example of modalists are oneness Pentecostals. Oneness Pentecostals falsely believe that Jesus is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oneness Pentecostals falsely believe that Jesus is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it even gets more confusing and confounding than that, but I'll leave it at that. This would be like, to understand that, this would be like one actor in a play who plays three different parts by putting on three different masks on his, on his face. Modalism denies the Trinity. That ought to get you upset if you're a Christian. Modalism denies the Trinity. One God who simultaneously and eternally exists as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A couple of favorite texts. What are their texts? A couple of favorite texts for the modalist are John chapter 10, verse 30, in John 14, 9. You can turn there if you want to. That's optional on that one. John 10, 30 and John 14, 9. In John chapter 10, verse 30, 30, John 10, 30, Jesus said this, I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. And the modalists falsely claim that Jesus is saying he is the Father. But Jesus is not saying he is the Father. Jesus is making two points here. First, the context shows that Jesus and the Father are one in purpose. This purpose is twofold. The salvation and eternal security of all the elect whom the Father has given to Jesus. The elect are Jesus' sheep. Neither the Father nor Jesus will ever lose any of their sheep. Genuine Christians are eternally secure. And, by the way, they will persevere to the end. Secondly, John chapter 10, verse 30, in the Greek, literally reads this. I and the Father, we are one. You may be thinking, why don't they just translate it that way? But anyways, I and the Father, we are one. The plural pronoun we demonstrates the distinction between the two persons, the Father and Jesus. Additionally, the last word in John chapter 10, verse 30, is the word one. In the Greek, this one is neuter. That's important. It's neuter instead of masculine. The very grammar here drives home the theological fact that Jesus and the Father are one in divine essence, nature, substance, or being. Jesus and the Father are one in divine essence, nature, substance, or being. Being. The same holds for another verse modalists like to confuse, and that is John chapter 14, verse 9. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus said this, 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Modalists falsely claim that Jesus is saying he is the Father. Again, Jesus is not saying that he is the Father. In short, Jesus is simply saying, when you look at the context, that he visibly reveals what the invisible Father is like. He visibly reveals what the invisible Father is like. The major problem with the heresy of modalism is that it denies the personal relationships between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that frequently appear in the Bible. For example, the Father sent his Son to die on the cross for sinners. The Father did not die on Calvary's cross as some modalists believe. That heretical idea is an attack on the atonement and against the gospel. The Bible teaches that God the Father poured out his divine wrath on his son when Jesus bore the punishment for the sins of all those chosen to believe. Here's another example. Jesus and the Holy Spirit both pray to the Father. But the Father does not pray to Jesus or to the Holy Spirit. We are, we are ready to learn about the connection between the three persons of the Trinity and the one being of God. Kicking in the high gear with your uh, paying attention, please. Three divine persons does not mean three divine beings. Please write that down. Three divine persons does not mean Three divine beings. That's so important, I'm going to repeat it again. Three divine persons does not mean three divine beings. To believe in three beings would be the heresy of tritheism. Tritheism. Tritheism is the false idea that the three persons of the Trinity are three beings or three Gods. Tritheism is the heretical idea, the false idea, that the Father, Son, and Spirit are three gods in a cluster. Tritheism is not the Trinity. Tritheism denies, contradicts the firm foundation of the Trinity. Monotheism. Tritheism denies monotheism. And we know monotheism is true. Monotheism is God is one being. Another major point, distinctions of persons does not mean division of being. Distinctions of persons does not mean division of being. One more time, distinction of persons does not mean division of being. Let's be real here. This is very challenging for us to comprehend, kind of like when you're teaching your kids the Trinity for the first time, they start asking some questions, how can that be? Why is it so challenging? It's challenging for us to comprehend because each person here this morning, or by now it's afternoon, each person here now, each person here is a different being. However, we accept this Trinitarian teaching by faith. Why? Because it is clearly biblical. By faith, we worship God as a trinity, as he has revealed himself in the Bible. Distinction of persons does not mean division of being. That's four times. That could be a record. In other words, three divine persons does not mean a division of God's one being into three equal parts. Jesus is not a part of the Trinity. But Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Neither, do, neither does the doctrine of the, of the Trinity say this, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each one-third of God's being. In other words, the Father is not 
one-third God. Jesus is not one-third God, and the, and the Spirit is not one-third God. God's being is undivided. God's being is undivided. Please continue to worship, but listen very carefully. I know this sounds crazy, but we're about, we're about to go deeper. The Father is fully God. Jesus is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is fully God. For example, perceive the profoundness of Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This means Jesus is fully God. The term deity is translated as Godhead. You may be wondering about that. Deity is translated as Godhead in some translations. The Godhead is God's nature or essence, including all his divine attributes. Let's talk briefly about the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. The third person is not the third part. The Holy Spirit is not the third being. The Holy Spirit is not the third God. The Holy Spirit is not a force or energy. Neither is the Holy Spirit third in terms of importance. He is co-equal with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is a divine person who exhibits personality with intellect, will, and emotions. For example, he can be grieved because of our sin. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit possesses all the divine attributes of God. Why is that? Because he is fully God. The Holy Spirit is described in the Bible in the following ways that also apply to the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is described as eternal, holy, true, omnipresent, which means present everywhere, omnipotent, which means all-powerful, omniscient, which, which means all-knowing, creator, sanctifier, author of all spiritual works, source of eternal life, teacher, raising Christ from the dead, inspiring the prophets, supplying ministers to the church, salvation is the work of, baptism ministered in the name of, and benediction given in the name of. The Holy Spirit is fully God. The following quote will help you understand that God's one being is not divided. God's one being is not divided. And again, let's dive deeper, not to drown. That would be crazy. I don't want you to drown. So that we want to dive deeper so that we can come up higher in worship. Wayne Grudem writes this in his systematic theology. Wayne Grudem writes this, quote, We must say that the person of the Father possesses the whole being of God in himself. Similarly, the Son possesses the whole being of God in himself. And the Holy Spirit possesses the whole being of God in himself. When we speak of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, we are not speaking of any greater being than when we speak of the Father alone, or the Son alone, or the Holy Spirit alone. The Father is all of God's being. The Son is all of God's being. And the Holy Spirit is all of God's being. Unquote. Grudem succinctly summarizes this incomprehensible, immense, immutable, which means doesn't change, eternal relationship. Here's a summary. There are three distinct persons, and the being of each person is equal to the whole being of God. I want you to write that down, even if you don't understand it. Write it down, and you can go back and think about it. That's normal for some of these concepts. Three, there are three distinct persons in the being of each person is equal to the whole being of God. 
There are three distinct persons, and the being of each person is equal to the whole being of God. Louis Burkhoff, very famous theologian from about 80 or 90 years ago, in his systematic theology, Louis Burkhoff writes this, quote, The whole undivided essence of God belongs equally to each of the three persons. Kind of a different way of saying the previous quote. The whole undivided essence of God belongs equally to each of the three persons. Burkhoff also writes this. The real difficulty lies in the relation in which the persons in the Godhead stand to the divine essence and to one another. I'll stop right there. The whole incomprehensibility of three in one and one in three. He's saying that in a, in a fancy theological way. It's partially comprehensible, though, and that's what we're learning this morning. In the same vein, he notes this. It is especially when we reflect on the relation of the three persons to the divine essence that all analogies fail us and we become deeply conscious of the fact that the Trinity is a mystery far, far beyond our comprehension. And I'm going to stop in the middle of the quote. Should that discourage you? No, because listen to the rest of this. It is the incomprehensible glory of the Godhead. So we're worshiping God for what we can learn this morning, being encouraged by that. And then the parts we can't know, we glorify God that and that also because the deep things belong to God. That's part of the Trinity. Nobody has it all figured out. So what are the distinctions among the three persons of the Trinity? Some of you are thinking about that. It's a big question. So what are the distinctions among the three persons of the Trinity? As touched on earlier, kind of like a warm-up, as touched on earlier, the distinction in the three divine persons refers to the different ways they relate to each other and to the world. You're going to understand this as I talk about it. The distinction in the three divine persons refers to the different ways they relate to each other in the world. Each member of the Trinitarian team, reverently speaking, each member of the Trinitarian team has a particular role, has particular roles to fulfill. Isn't that interesting? These roles are called different things by theologians. These roles are called functions, operations, or activities. Theologians call this the economic trinity. And the ESV study Bible has a good article on the trinity. And they have actually something that's very helpful. And it's a picture of the trinitarian triangle. That's as good as it gets, the Trinitarian triangle. Whereas all these other analogies that you make up from nature and things, they don't work. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't use those. The ESV study Bible efficiently explains, quote, the uniform pattern of scripture is that the Father plans, directs, and sends. The Son is sent by the Father and is subject to the Father's authority and obedient to the Father's will. And both the Father and the Son direct and send the Spirit who carries out the will of both. Yet, this is somehow consistent with equality in being and attributes, unquote. James White drives home the crucial point that Quote, difference in function does not indicate inferiority of nature. Wow, that's huge. Think about this. I'd write that down. Difference in function does not indicate inferiority of nature. Difference in function does not indicate inferiority of nature. Continuing the quote, that is, just because the Father, Son, and Spirit do different things does not mean that any of them is inferior to the others in nature. Now, there's applications, which we don't have time to go into. There are applications, rich applications, for the Christian family that have been touched on in previous sermons by Pastor Bobby. I've been excited, but I'm about to get more excited. Because uh, listen to this. And if you're a Christian, you'll get excited too. People express it in different ways. Redemption 
is Trinitarian. Redemption is Trinitarian. Redemption was accomplished by the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, on Calvary's cross. Jesus redeemed. He paid in full the ransom price with his blood to set free all believing sinners from sin, slavery, and punishment in hell. The Father planned redemption. The Son accomplished redemption, and the Holy Spirit applies redemption. Again, the Father planned redemption for his chosen people in eternity past. The Son accomplished. That's huge. The Son accomplished redemption for his people on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago. The Holy Spirit applies redemption to the elect through the gospel. And here's an example. Just listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. The context here, as a side note, the context here is encouragement for believers to stand firm in the midst of being shaken by false teaching about end-time events. Now, Paul wrote this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But we are, and notice that the Trinitarian uh, truth in here. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Because God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unquote. Paul thanks God the Father for the brethren because they are the elect. Do you ever do that in your prayers? Chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be saved. And the elect are beloved by the Lord, the Lord Jesus. God's election before time was applied in time by the Spirit's application of Scripture. The elect are empowered by the Holy Spirit to wholeheartedly believe, to obey the truth of the gospel. The purpose of salvation emphasized here is, quote, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This connects with worshiping. Oh, the bliss of worshiping Jesus. Think about this. Worshiping Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever in heaven. Imagine this, reflecting the burning effulgence of Christ's glory forever with all the saints of all the ages. Please listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. This verse brilliantly displays the Trinity team working together in salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. And by the way, this could be called a Trinitarian greeting. A Trinitarian greeting. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. By the way, the phrase sprinkling of the blood of Jesus is taken from the Old Testament. And this sprinkling emphasizes the fact that coming to Christ as Savior is also a commitment to obey Him, to worship Him, to serve Him, to follow Him as Lord of your life. Let's survey the Trinity at Calvary's cross in Hebrews 9, 14. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, in the context is Hebrews chapter 7, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. The Old Testament sacrifices of animals could not cleanse the guilty conscience with the forever forgiveness of sins. But praise to our trying God for our great high priest. He sacrificed himself one time for sinners. Jesus lived a perfect life and thus was qualified to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin to God the Father by the power of the Spirit. As a matter of fact, by the power of the eternal Spirit. Jesus bore the guilt of sin, the condemnation 
for all those who had come to him alone to be declared not guilty, justified. Have you done that? Have you said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and knelt at the cross of Calvary to have your sins forgiven? If you haven't, please do that today by grace. Listen to this. The Father can justly forgive you if you do that. You know why? The Father can justly forgive the believing sinner because Jesus took the punishment for that sinner's sin on the cross. And the Christian can justly go to heaven. The Christian can justly go to heaven because he has been credited with the perfect righteousness of Christ. He's been clothed with the righteous robe of Jesus Christ. Christians have been saved to enjoy serving, worshiping, and glorifying our trying God now and forever. Okay, now you're ready. Here is the Trinity at Calvary. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 says this, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without stain or spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's finish by turning in your Bible to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. This will be extra special and meaningful, meaningful for everybody who is a Christian and has been baptized, but maybe especially meaningful and special to those who have been recently baptized here at Calvary. This is a classic Trinitarian passage in Matthew 28, 19. I'm excited because I have the opportunity to teach you what appears like a new truth, but it's an old uh, orthodox truth, but it may seem new to you. Matthew 28, verse 19, and I'll go ahead and read verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 19. And given the Great Commission, Jesus himself, authoritatively declares that the Trinity is the God of Christianity. Do you see that? Jesus himself authoritatively declares that the Trinity is the God of Christianity. Wow! He commands us to baptize believers in the triune name of the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, you see the threeness here. But please notice, the name is singular. In the name of is singular and underscores what? It underscores the oneness of monotheism. The singular in the name of points to the foundation of the Trinity. Monotheism, God is one being. Also, the name is the triune name or threefold name, which points to the three persons of the Trinity. In conclusion, Christian baptism beautifully demonstrates the Trinity. God is one being, eternally existing in three distinct persons. Each person is fully God, but there is only one God. I want to end with a Puritan prayer from the Valley of Vision on the Trinity. And this shows how an under, a better understanding of the Trinity can help you to pray in a more meaningful way and worshipful and God-honoring way. And you'll be able to understand this prayer better now after, after listening to this sermon. The Valley Vision, the Trinity. Let's close in prayer. Please bow your heads. The Trinity. Three and one. One in three. God of my salvation. Heavenly Father, blessed Son, eternal Spirit. I adore thee as one being, one essence, one God, and three distinct persons for bringing sinners to thy knowledge and to thy kingdom.
O Father, thou hast loved me and sent Jesus to redeem me. O Jesus, thou hast loved me and assumed my nature, shed thine own blood to wash away my sins, wrought righteousness to cover my unworthiness. O Holy Spirit, thou hast loved me and entered my heart and planted there eternal life. Reveal to me the glories of Jesus. Three persons and one God. I bless and praise thee for love so unmerited, so unspeakable, so wondrous, so mighty, mighty to save the lost and raise them to glory. O Father, I thank thee that in the fullness of grace thou hast given me to Jesus to be his sheep, jewel, portion. O Jesus, I thank thee that in the fullness of grace thou hast accepted, espoused, bound me. O Holy Spirit, I thank thee that in the fullness of grace thou hast exhibited Jesus as my salvation, implanted faith within me, subdued my stubborn heart, made me one with him forever. O Father, thou art enthroned to hear my prayers. O Jesus, thy hand is outstretched to take my petitions. O Holy Spirit, thou art willing to help my infirmities, to show me my need, to supply words, to pray within me, to strengthen me that I faint not in supplication. O triune God, who commandeth the universe, thou hast commanded me to ask for those things that concern thy kingdom and my soul. Let me live and pray as one baptized into the threefold name. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand one more time as we close our service.